You're listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. For more teaching and resources, visit LargerStory.com. My devotionals were asking the question, what prompted the Father to burst out from heaven three times during our Lord's earthly ministry and to declare something with great passion about His Son? The devotionals are entitled, A Passion for Christ, and we're looking at the Father's passion for Christ. What made Him so excited about His Son? And if we can understand that, then maybe we can share in some of that excitement, some of that passion. I had an opportunity about two years ago to have a meal with a man that some of you know, J. Oswald Sanders, a 90-year-old saint. Um, wonderful. I met him for the first time when he was speaking at a church at a friend of mine pastors, and he invited me to come and hear him, and I wanted to do so, and I had lunch with him. In the course of about a four-hour conversation with myself and Dr. Sanders and some others, one question that I asked him was this, how do you understand that, that people overcome their struggles? How do folks move through their struggles successfully? And his answer was very simple. He said they have to develop a consuming passion for Christ. And that passion for Christ has to be stronger than whatever passion is supporting their struggles. So how do we develop a passion for Christ? And I'm not going to answer that very well, but the way I'm approaching it is to ask, what incited the Father's passion about His Son in those three times that He burst out from heaven? And can we understand that in a way that might encourage us to develop not the same passion, we'll never get there, but but a passion that at least is stronger in our souls than, in a growing way than any other passion. And I introduced that thought yesterday, and then I told you to put it in a shelf for a while, and by Friday we'll get back to it and try to de- use the material that we're developing in the meantime to make sense of those three times when the Father burst out from heaven. Yesterday we talked about the fact that, these, that sin began because people didn't understand the depths of God's goodness. Eve sinned because she was deceived, thinking that God was holding out on her. Adam sinned, I suggest. This is hardly a complete explanation. There never will be one. But Adam sinned, at least in part, I suggest, because he felt that there were some things going on in his world, namely his wife's sinfulness, that the Lord's goodness wasn't deep enough to handle. And therefore, together, Adam and Eve took matters into their own hands. They ate of the forbidden fruit and determined to, as a lifestyle to arrange for their well-being. That was their commitment. Now, when you doubt God's goodness, and when you take matters into your own hands, and when you arrange for your own pleasure and minimize your own pain, when that becomes your fundamental agenda in life, as it is every one of ours, natural fundamental agenda in life. The Spirit changes that. But that's the natural agenda everybody's born into the world with. That's the disease from Adam and Eve. When you do that... And your basic agenda is to look after yourself. Certain fruit develops. And the fruit is epitomized in symbolic form as well as literal form by what Cain did. In Jude, Jude is talking about certain godless men. Look at verse 4. Certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They're godless men. Who changed the grace of our God. And grace is the ultimate expression of goodness. That's ultimately, I believe, what Adam didn't understand about God, because God could not reveal his gracious character to Adam and Eve in the pre-fall garden, because there was no need for grace, because Adam and Eve were innocent. 
But those who now live post-fall, as of course all of us do, God reveals His grace, but we twist that. We misunderstand something about the depths of God's goodness revealed in grace. And godless men, we're told in Jude, change the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. The verses continue describing these men, and verse 11 brings it to a, a climax when he says, Woe to them. Very strong judgment. Because they have taken the way of Cain. Woe to them. Very strong judgment. Because they have taken the way of Cain. They rushed for profit in the Balaam's error, been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. By the way, those three examples of sin bear a great deal of study. We'll, we'll look at just the one this morning. What's the way of Cain? What's he talking about? Adam and Eve sinned by doubting God's goodness. God, you're not good, said Eve. God, you're not good enough, said Adam. The fruit of that is the way of Cain. What is the way of Cain? Look at First John. We'll get back to Genesis, the obvious portion, in just a moment. First John 3. And verse 11, this is the message that you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. It's not a new message, it's an Old Testament message as well. And in contrast to loving one another, the Apostle of Love says, don't be like Cain. Don't follow in the way of Cain is the implication. Cain belonged to the evil one, and as a result of belonging to the evil one, committed murder against his brother. What we know from that passage is whatever Cain did, it was the opposite of love. It was a heinous crime. And we know that it came out of belonging to someone other than God. One more passage in Luke chapter 11. As we try to define the way of Cain this morning. Luke chapter 11. The Lord, speaking to the Pharisees, <clears throat> declares woe to them as well in verse 47. Woe to you who are like Cain in 1 John. Woe to the Pharisees because you are like Cain in Luke 11 and verse 47. And as he describes what they do, these Pharisees, and pronounces woe upon them, he says in verse 50, Because of what you've done, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world, beginning with the, the sin of Cain, from the blood of Abel, which Hebrews tells us still speaks. Abel is the first prophet. You'll be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets, beginning with Abel. What does Abel prophesy? What's the way of Cain? What are we talking about here? With that as a little bit of New Testament context, turn back to Genesis 4, and let's, in light of what we just read, let's explore the significance of the way of Cain. I believe that gives us New Testament warrant for exploring in detail what happened in Genesis 4. And what I'm doing, it seems to me, is trying to zero in on defining the wasp. The wasp that still walks in me, the wasp that still walks in you, although there's no reason why I have to walk in the way of Cain, 
God calls me to walk in the way of Seth. And there are two directions that come out of the loins of Adam. Adam and Eve bore Cain first, and then Abel. When Abel was murdered, we're told that Seth was born after that. Must have been a very little baby to a, at least a teenage brother, I presume, if not more. And out of those two sons came two lines, the godly line of Seth and the ungodly line of Cain. God calls me to walk in the godly line of Seth. The line of Seth has been corrupted. We'll look at that in Genesis 6 tomorrow. The godly line of Cain has been, or of Seth rather, has been corrupted to the point where a whole new line had to begin through someone else, through someone who was better than Seth. The entire history of the human race ultimately degenerates to the way of Cain because the line of Seth slipped in a way we'll look at tomorrow. If it's true then that the entire history of the human race exhibits the way of Cain, it behooves us to understand what the way of Cain is. Genesis chapter 4, Adam lay with his wife Eve and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. And she said, this is the third time that Eve spoke, only three sentences of Eve are recorded in the scripture. The first sentence was in response to the devil. I think you've got a point, she said. That was her first sentence. The second sentence was, the serpent deceived me and I ate. First she talked to the devil, then she talked to God, and at some level at least acknowledged her guilt, perhaps some blame shifting with the serpent, but it was rather terse and to the point. And the third sentence, she said, was... With the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. For reasons I'll make clear on Friday afternoon, when I give my talk on masculinity, I think what she's saying is, since Adam failed to be a man, maybe now that a man comes out of my body, I'll finally have what my soul longs for. And later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Did you ever think about the heartbreak of Eve? Think of yourself as Eve now, as I read the rest of the story. From Eve's perspective, she was a mother. Many of you are mothers. Think of the perspective of Eve as you listen to what happened. Now, Abel kept flocks. These are her two boys. We have two boys. Rachel's the mother of two boys. Eve was the mother of two boys at this point. Now, Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. Both, I presume, honorable activities. Nothing better about one than the other. In the course of time, and let me insert the word however, I think that's implied. In the course of time, however, as time went on, the disease that Adam and Eve had passed on to Cain began to be evident. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, but Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of of his flock. Lots of debate as to why Cain's offering was inferior to Abel's, and I don't want to get into all that other than to say that the evidence seems to be that Abel's offering showed more of an attitude of worship. More of an attitude of, I'm going to bring up the fat of the firstlings. I'm going to give my very best. Cain, rather, brought some of the fruits. That's the casual attitude of dropping a buck on the collection plate Sunday morning. That's the casual attitude of, in a perfunctory, ritualistic way, doing what good Christians do. Having devotions every morning, never missing church. But doing it as kind of a, that'll, that'll keep you satisfied, won't it? Kind of a mood. Well, it doesn't keep God satisfied. Read the book of Malachi. He's not satisfied with less than the best. 
And we're told at the end of verse 4, the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering. That word, looked with favor, is a, is a common phrase in the Old Testament. It's used many times to, to illustrate the point. It's used of Hannah, who um, was, was, was childless. And after much prayer, God looked with favor on her. And she gave birth. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering. How do you suppose that was made known? Do you recall sitting in Sunday school class 20, 30 years ago in the days of flannel graph lessons? Did you ever see how that was depicted? And I don't know, maybe the flannel graph lessons are right. I'm not trying to mock them at all. But the way I can recall as a kid in Sunday school class looking at a flannel graph lesson was to see Abel's offering and Cain's offering, some vegetables and an animal, and God coming down and burning up Abel's offering as a sign of receiving it. I think that's possible. I mean, we don't know. But all we do know is he looked with favor. In some way, there was visible blessing on Abel's life that there was not on Cain's. I tend to think it was not just a a one moment when the fire came down and consumed Abel's offering as God's way of saying, I accept that, Cain, take a hike. That may be the case. I don't think so. I think there was more of a mood of favor on Abel's life. There was certain blessing on Abel's life. How do you feel when your sibling, when your best friend is blessed in a way you are not? On Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. How do you feel when your college buddy, your roommate, your best friend, is 20 years later, and he's a successful businessman or professional, has a great wife, three kids, all in Bible school. Your wife left you four years ago, and one of your kids is a drug addict, and you meet for a reunion, and you swap stories. Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? We'll not take time to look at those two ways of describing Cain, but that's worth some thought. Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? If you not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, and then here's... Um, the first divine exhortation to fallen man, you must master it. Was there any hope of Cain mastering it? You must master it. Here are the Ten Commandments. Do all this and you will live. Was there any hope of living by the law? His exhortation was not received very strongly, obviously. Verse 8, there's no thought of Cain wrestling with mastering sin, had he done so, my guess is he'd have admitted helplessness and come to God for mercy and would have found it. But that's not what he did. Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. Come on, bud, let's go out and have a chat. Let's go out and play ball. You got a frisbee? Who knows what he's saying. But he sure had an agenda. This is premeditated murder. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. And the Lord said to Cain, where's your brother Abel? I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Now, what I want you to look at is verse 10. and Study this with me for a little bit. What have you done, Cain? I hear anguish in God's voice there, don't you? What have you done? This was not my design for humanity. My design was not relational failure. My design, my design was not jealousy and competitiveness and destruction and enmity and finally murder. What have you done? 
Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now, as a result of what you've done, you are under a curse, and you're driven from the ground where you buried your brother. You're driven from the ground which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Let me tell you my understanding of that passage. I think what God is saying that is that relational failure uncorrected means you can have no rest. <clears throat> Why does our Lord say, before you worship, if you have attention with your brother, go deal with it? Relational failure undealt with, unrepented of, uncorrected, relational failure that's ongoing spoils rest. I think God is being, once again in his judgment, very merciful. I think he's consigning Cain to a life of wandering, restlessness, misery, as a way of driving him back to himself. You're going to be a restless wanderer all the days of your life on the earth. You're never going to be able to unpack your suitcase. You're never going to have a bed you can call yours. You're never going to have your own bedroom where nobody else is welcome because it's your bed. Whenever you want it, you can have it. You're never going to have that. You're going to be a wanderer, restless on the earth. Why? Because you've relationally failed. And until relational failure is dealt with, there's just no rest. What was God driving Cain toward? Well, repentance. Coming back to God and saying, I failed. I killed my brother. There's something desperately wrong with me that I would do something like that. There's a wasp inside of me crawling about and it's mastered me. You told me that I should master it. It's mastered me. Oh, wretched man that I am. What shall I do? God, is there goodness within you that can handle this? Well, the disease is already hardened in Cain's heart. He belonged to the evil one, we're told. He had no mood of coming to God for mercy, trusting God's goodness, coming in repentance. His mood when God says, you're to wander restlessly because there's no rest for those who are not in relationship. Rest comes to those who love and are loved. That's the only place where there's rest. You don't love, you murder. You murder, you believe lies, you're like your father the devil, the father of lies, and you murder, and as a result there's no rest. Oh, folks, when clients come to you and they're just scrambling inside and turmoil and there's no restfulness and no peace as you know is in your own heart as is in mine. We've got to learn something about what it means to rest in the fact that our relationship is perfect with Christ. Positionally, it's the gospel which gives us rest. It's the gospel which gives us energy to go out and relate well. The degree to which we can do that is the degree to which we'll appropriate and enjoy rest. Cain's response is not to repent. Cain's response is rather, in verse 13, to say to the Lord, My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I think that's a striking phrase. Why would one who belongs to the devil care about the presence of God? Today you're driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. Well, does that bother you, Cain? He certainly wasn't worshipping God. He didn't come to God and worship as Abel did. He came to God in um, a casual, all right, I'll give you your due and I'll get on and live my life. But now you're casting me from your presence and, and I'm griping about that. Now let me tell you a, a wild thought and you can disagree. I'm not sure of myself here at all. But it seems to me that one whose heart is hardened, when they talk about God's presence and want God's presence, I, I watched a television show two weeks ago with Magic Johnson. He and his wife were being interviewed by, I think it was... 
that classical news lady of all time, Oprah? Was it Oprah? Somebody else wasn't. It might have been Oprah. As I watched that for a bit, Magic was giving glory to God for his life. And he was saying, I couldn't make it apart from prayer. I don't know what he means. Has the man become a Christian? I don't see evidence of that. A lot of unbelievers talk about the presence of God. I had lunch with an 82-year-old man a few weeks ago who's not a believer, the father of a good friend of mine, and he kept saying, the Lord's been good to me. He doesn't believe in an afterlife. There's no heaven, there's no hell. But the Lord's been good to me. What do people that don't know God mean when they, when they talk about the presence of God? Answer, I think it's fairly simple. I, I want whatever power there is to make my life go better. Simple as that. There's no coming to God on His terms. Confession, repentance, pleading mercy. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. I think what Cain is saying, whatever advantages I might get out of you, you're even withdrawing those. I thought you weren't very good, now I'm sure of it. Whatever value being in your presence might have for me, as magic says, I'm only making it through prayer. Whatever value the presence of God might have for me, you're taking it away. You're driving me to land, I'll be hidden from your presence. I'll be a restless wanderer in the earth. You mean me bad, don't you, God? You just hate me, you're no good. Whoever finds me will kill me. No, you're missing the point, Cain. I'm going to keep you alive. I'm going to put a mark on you. No one's going to get after you because I want you to stay miserable until you repent. That's what Hosea says. Hosea 5 says, the condition for meaningful repentance is misery. The last verse in Hosea 5 says that. In their misery, they will earnestly seek me. And who are those who find God? Answer, those who earnestly seek Him. And who are those who earnestly seek Him? Those who are miserable without Him. No, I'm going to put a mark on you, Cain, so that no one who found him would kill him. I want you to stay miserable until you come back to me. I'm not into misery. I'm into fellowship. But the way to get you to have fellowship with me is to drive you into misery, to realize that my son means what he's going to say a few thousand years from now, that life is knowing God. Now, if you don't know God, you don't have joy. I want my people to know me. My people perish for lack of knowledge of me. What was Cain's response? Look at verse 16. Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. He lay with his wife. She became pregnant. And he had a, a son. His firstborn son was named Enoch. That's not the Enoch that we're more familiar with. That's a different Enoch. But his firstborn son was named Enoch. What I want you to see is this. What's the first thing Cain did after God drove him into wandering? He tried to nullify the effect of wandering. He tried to minimize his misery. How? He built a city. God says, I'm not ashamed to be called the God of, the, of those who live for the eternal city that I'm building, but I am ashamed by implication to be called the God of people who follow in the way of Cain who built a city. He named it after his son Enoch. So the first city in the history of time was named Enoch. Enoch was born, a variety of people whose names I can't pronounce, until 19, verse Lamech came along. And Lamech, who was seventh from Adam through Cain, a number which I think has some biblical significance, 
epitomizes the completion of the way of Cain. Lamech epitomizes the completion, the fullness of the way of Cain that Jude condemns, that our Lord condemns, that John condemns. And Lamech epitomizes the way of Cain. How? Well, he marries two women, Adam and Zillah, and Lamech had four kids. Have you ever notice his four children's names? Look at it in verse 20. Ada, one of Lamech's two wives. By the way, Lamech is the first polygamist. Why is that? What's the energy behind polygamy in this particular early culture? Well, the more wives, the more kids, the more power. What's Cain into? What's Lamech into, rather? I'm going to make my life work. I need all the resources I can get. I'm going to have a couple of women. I don't care about anything about monogamy. That's... Only value I have is making sure my city gets built. If a couple of wives help me with that, I'll do it. How do so many seminarians pick a wife? What are your resources to support me in the ministry? Do you play the piano? I'll marry you. <laughs> Ada gave birth to Jabel. Jabel was the father of those who live in tents and raise livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who play the harp and flute. Zillah, the other wife of Lamech, also had a son, Tublacain, who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. And Tublacain's sister, so Zillah had a boy and a girl. Tublacain's sister was Nama. So you have four children, three boys and a girl. The three boys are named a name that has in common one thought. All their three names come out of one root word, which means activity or movement, or leadership. And look what you have in those three boys. You have a farmer, a musician, and an industrialist. The resources for civilization. What's Lamech doing? I think what Lamech is doing is this. He's honoring the energy of his great-great-great-grandfather, Cain, who was determined to not pay the consequences of being out of relationship. Determined to build a city in a world without love. Determined to make life work without learning the costliness of meaningful, deep love. And the resources were provided him through his children to build civilization. The city now is well built. Food was provided through one boy who moved into his world and brought forth food. The arts, enjoyment, aesthetics, music was brought forth through a second boy who moved into his world and sang and played the flute and brought the pleasures of music to bear on life. The third boy moved into his world with industrial capacity and began to forge certain kinds of tools out of bronze and iron, used his resources to further the purposes of civilization apart from relationship. What's the way of Cain? Epitomized in Lamech. Let me put it to you this way. I will find resources that I can manage to make my life work. Does that sound familiar? I will find resources that I can manage. In my children, my life will work because my kids are going to turn out right. Oh, I'll stay in God's presence to get Him to make it happen. 
But I will find resources I can harness, I can manage, whether in me, whether in God, whether in my church, whether in my pastor, whether in the Bible, whether in my kids, whether in my friends. I will find resources that I can harness, I can manage to make my life work. Why? What's the fuel behind the energy of Cain, this way of Cain? Well, the energy is real simple. The bottom line fuel is that I'm alone. God can't be trusted. The lie that the devil introduced to Adam and Eve has wrought a civilization without relationship. (laughs) It's almost silly to think of Satan offering Jesus that civilization. Ever fly in in a city at night and you see the, all the lights, it's beautiful, flying into New York, and from the air it looks just gorgeous. Beautiful sight. There's the devil saying, Jesus, you want that? And Jesus is saying, yeah, I see that whorehouse down there. I see that crack house. I see that church where nobody's getting along real well. That's where they're splitting. You think I want that? I want to redeem it. I want to call forth the people that are going to live in my city in relationship. Now that's different. What's the energy of Cain? I will build my city without priority concern for relationship. That's what I'm going to do. And it all begins, my last sentence and we'll stop, I'm due to stop. It all begins with, don't lose my last sentence, looking at life and concluding God is not good enough to be trusted. With that as the wasp, the result is, I'm going to find resources that when I look back on my background, with my dysfunctional family, with my alcoholic father, with my divorced parents, with with my deficiencies, with my liabilities, with my struggles, I'm going to find some way to make life work without ever learning to love as God loves. I'm going to put my life together without ever participating in the energy of Christ. That's the way of Cain. Why was God so excited when Jesus came? Jesus came to build a whole different kind of civilization. And the Father went wild with joy. Lord, help us to go wild with joy at the prospect of what you're doing. Lord, help us to realize that right now you're building a city and it's a whole lot better than the one we're living in now. Lord, with all of our resources, with all of our counseling techniques and counseling theories and all of the wisdom and giftedness that we have, we're just not going to make this place much better. Lord, help us to be involved in this place and do what we can to push back the effects of the fall, but never with the idea of using our resources to make life work for us. Help us to look for that eternal city. Help us to believe your words, Lord, when you said you're going to prepare a place. You're building a city. What a different one than here. Help us to live in light of what's coming up and therefore to be wild with joy in the middle of lives that are falling apart. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. To subscribe, visit LargerStory.com.